and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I am joined by comedian, presenter and author Dave Chawner. Dave has personal experience of anorexia and uses humour as his tool to understand and explain his eating disorder experience. Dave now works to raise awareness about eating disorders through comedy, particularly his course Comedy for Coping and his book Weight Expectations, One Man's Recovery from Anorexia. Hello Dave. Hello, what a lovely intro. Thank Thank you very much. I've done my research. I know. I mean, that's that's unnerving, isn't it? I mean, I I forget that the the book always has that little, and that was my publisher's uh, decision, not mine. One man's recovery from anorexia. I just, I think that's a bit superfluous. So, like, when you were saying that, I was like, "Oh, where's this going?" I was like, "Oh no, that's the title." But there we go, anyway. <laughs> oh, what's she gonna do? Oh no, she I know. That's my book title. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, one, one recovered from, and I was like, oh, this is going somewhere different. <laughs> we're going to talk about, like, roadside assistance recovery. It's great, but no. I mean, we can, if you really want to. I've never spoken about that on the podcast before. Don't know how interesting it would be. I don't have any strong feelings about RAC or AA, to be honest, <laughs> so I reckon we probably better just stick on top of it, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um so my plan for this mm. podcast was I enjoyed reading your book so much and I'm not gonna lie I'm not a massive reader like I, I'm one of those people that if I read a book it has to like I have to grip onto it and then I read it in like two days and then um, I move on and your book was it it filled that quota I I read it and I just couldn't stop and honestly I think I just sat in bed for two days and I read it um it was absolutely Aww. brilliant um. Thank you. That's so <laughs> sweet. It's kind of weird because like a lot of people are surprised that I can read, let alone write. But I <laughs> I think one of the things that really got me, I mean, it, it was genuinely, it's people like every always sort of ask, like, how did you get into writing a book? And like I I genuinely it happened completely by accident and I'm very lucky and blessed and privileged that I had that opportunity and I don't want to sound ungrateful in any way (laughs) shape or form but writing it was an absolute bastard I I hated it it's a terrible process and I will never understand people go oh I want to write a book and I'm like what is wrong with you I mean go for it but why would you want to did, did having your diary help? Because I was thinking, like, when I was reading your book, like, how can you remember all of this? You know what? That's a brilliant question. But I, uh, so I still keep my diary every single day. And it's one of the best things that I ever did. And actually, one of the things when I started writing the book, I was like, I'm going to go through my old diaries. I'm going to read everything. And to be honest, I um, didn't. But I think just the act of going through uh, every day when it happens and writing the sort of significant mm. events of that day is actually genuinely in a really odd and incredibly uh, poncy way. I do feel that like my life almost began when I was 16. Like I genuinely can't remember. You talked to me about when I was 13 and I was yeah. like, I, I don't know who was that. Whereas like, 16 I can still very much relate with that person from then onwards was that when you started your diary 
So that was when I was, yes, 2006, started writing my diary there. Right. And it, there's this weird kind of bell curve because I started liking it. And then like after a couple of weeks, like, oh, this is a, annoying. Thing. But I've been doing it now for uh, 15 years, wow. every single day. And wow. I've never missed a day. And I've now got to a kind of point where I've fucking got to do that now. I can't, <laughs> can't just stop one mild Tuesday in November. Yeah? I think that's amazing. Um, my plan mm. for this podcast was to, I loved the way that you structured your book with the different stages of an eating disorder. And I've been, I'm actually so impressed myself. I'm so prepared. I've written down the quotes that I enjoyed from each section. Um, I actually amazing. wanted to also like talk about the songs and I've forgotten to write down which songs I enjoyed, but that was another element of the book that I loved in the songs that you put in each section. I thought that was fantastic. So the first stage that you spoke about was the pre-contemplation stage. So the quote that I really liked was, it didn't begin so much as develop and it crept up gradually like an annoying itch on the back of your hand. I didn't know what I was doing. Behaviours just kind of developed without my realising and I thought they were all helping me to get back on top of things. I mean, that, that I think that's really important, especially for what I'm doing now with Comedy for Coping. So for anybody listening that might not be aware of it, basically there's this psychological theory that applies not only to like eating disorders, but any type of change, which basically is called the trans-theoretical model, which basically says change doesn't happen straight away, happens in numerous stages, which makes sense. Because firstly, you have to realise that you need to change. Then you have to want to change. Then you have to actually put in the work to change, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that really irks me about mental health is one of the sort of received wisdom is to just talk. And actually, when I started developing the anorexia, if I could just talk about it, then I would just fix it myself. Mm-hmm. The problem was I didn't realise that I'd got an eating disorder. And even when people start telling me that I'd got an eating disorder, and that's important because they kept on telling me rather than asking me, that was too melodramatic to explain what I was going through. So I was like, well, you're an idiot. Like, you know, I'm sorry that you have a uh, sort of debt of drama in your life, but go watch Corrie or Hollyoaks. Don't try and pass this on to me. Um, and, and I think that's very, I mean, a, a great example of this was years ago at the Fringe. I, so whenever I go to the Edinburgh Fringe, I always live in a, a wonderful house of about, there's about eight or nine comics that live together. And one of them came home one day and he was eating fish and chips. And he was sitting there eating. And while he was, he was on his phone and he went, mate, I'm just ordering a, a curry. Do you want anything? And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm okay, Tommy. And then when the curry arrived, he uh, sat there halfway through the curry and started going, oh, I'm still not, I'm going to get a pizza and started ordering a pizza. And I said, look, mate, like, I'm, I ain't having a go. Like you do you. But that's uh, that seems like quite a lot of, uh, food in like quite a short amount of time and he just very openly went well I'm eating my feelings isn't it and he in a million years would never accept acknowledge or take that he has an eating disorder or even a disordered relationship 
with food and i think that's really common and more common than people realize that there's a lot of people out there don't actually know that they've got an eating disorder no and i always think that is that for me is the thing that i am like really trying to figure out in my brain as to how we sort of start to target that because it's really great that we're building awareness of eating disorders and which you know we're trying to improve treatment and trying to improve like preventative measures and stuff but a lot of the times you know I I work in eating disorders and so I guess sometimes I think if I see a a friend or somebody that I think might have a difficult relationship with food I'm like okay well people are probably going to look to me to be the person to say is everything okay but a lot of the time you're you are just met with denial or you know I can't believe that you're saying you think I've got an eating disorder I've definitely not got one it's just like how how do we like get through that because people will just you know whether it's something that they've normalized in their mind or they're not aware that actually their like relationship with food is a bit strange or disordered I, I I genuinely can't think of how we do that because people then just become a bit defensive yeah well I, th- I think it's because we see it as a very binary thing do you have an mm-hmm. eating disorder or you don't whereas actually I think it's more of a um a spectrum and I think mm-hmm. that's what's kind of like rubbish about mental illness is that like I live with my brain every single day uh I can never get a little holiday from it so of course people around me can see when my mental health is good or bad more than me because when my mental health is good I'm busy having mm. a ball I'm I'm dicking about I'm like you know dancing to not 19 forever or busy making <laughs> straw figurines of dogs or whatever it is um you know, I'm, I'm not sitting there thinking, yeah, is this a good day? Yeah, I'm feeling slight reduction in cortisol, a lot more oxytocin. No, I'm just cracking on. And I think the analogy that I always use for people is um, the difference between emotion and mental health is a lot like the difference between weather and climate. So your emotion is a lot like the weather. It will change two or three times a day, whereas your mental health is a lot like the climate. It should be generally sunny, warm, and okay. Uh, Obviously, the odd rainy day helps things to grow. But if it's always dark, damp, and cold, then nothing will grow. And I think that's one of the things that makes mental health generally so difficult, is trying to assess whether the climate is cooling down or whether it's just an off day. And it's exactly the same with food. Yeah. I really like that. And I really like what you said about, you know, you have to have a rainy day in order for things to grow, because I think often we can get fixated on, you know, feeling down or whatever, and that being a negative. But, you know, it's like that old cliche saying you don't what is it you don't get flowers without rain or something like that I don't know um <laughs> also like the, the fact that like Damien Rice and Ed Sheeran have sold and Adele have sold so many fucking albums of course some people like being down <laughs> sometimes yeah and that's <laughs> I I often like find comfort in like listening to sad music and just yeah. like sitting in a ball of sadness I think I don't think it's a, <laughs> a negative <Great>. thing <laughs> that's a great little phrase although I do have to ask what sort of sad music is your sad music depends so okay mostly I'm kind of 
I think I should have been born maybe 10, 20 years before I was. Um, actually, no, I don't know. It's like all the noughties punk rock. So like Green Brilliant. Day, My Chemical Romance, Lincoln Park, Good Charlotte, all that, yeah. Unfortunately, and this isn't my opinion, this is scientific fact, 2007 was the best year for music. Not my opinion. That is the <laughs> fact of sciencey people. But around then, oh, yeah, well, if you're talking around then, there's some great bands like uh, Dashboard Confessional, Jack's Mannequin, um, who else? Um, the, the Weepies. Oh, God, there's so many, like, depressing songs. But someone told me recently, and I think this is really important, especially in the current geopolitical, social kind of climate. Um, who, who is it? I think it's, um, is it Julian Clary or someone that has a quote that um, loneliness is the most addictive drug of all. And it's nice to have a little time to sit in your ball of sadness, but you've got to time yourself because actually mm. the longer you go without you know giving yourself a pick me up or seeing other people that's when it gets harder and harder yeah and that is so true because I think it does become comfortable and it's really yeah. funny that you said about loneliness because I was listening to a podcast earlier that was talking about loneliness and this guy was saying that he had a twin and he moved away um to go to university but his twin didn't and on their birthday every year they'd um obviously be together and this was their first birthday of not being together and the brother was like we'll call each other at this specific time and the brother that was still at home didn't call. And so the brother was just like really upset and like, you know, I, I'm really lonely because I don't have any friends and you've moved on without me. And it turned out that he'd kicked the wire off his phone. So this was like years and years ago. So the brother had been trying to call. So then the next day he realized that he'd kicked the wire, plugged the phone back in, the phone rang immediately. And the brother was like, why didn't you call me? Um, like, you know, I've been trying to get hold of you. And he was like, well, like the phone unplugged and I just think didn't think that you wanted to call me and so he was like but why didn't you just ring me and it was just it was basically saying like we get so trapped up in our kind of like thoughts about loneliness thinking that people don't want to be friends with us when we haven't seen them for a while that we then don't reach out to them either I honestly think, and, and it's weird that you bring up the university, because I remember specifically always saying this, that actually people used to check in with their mates from home and sort of have catch-ups and stuff. But honestly, the thing that meant more to me with friends, and that I still try and do, because I'm rubbish at... I'm not rubbish at keeping in touch with people, but I'm rubbish at keeping in touch regularly with people. Um, and the, the texts or the messages that mean the most is if uh, someone will just text me going, heard this song and thought of you, hope yes. you're all right. Or, I, th those honestly mean the, the most. And I think it, that's such a good thing about, you know, when it, when it is a friendship that is kind of like a true friendship you don't have to message somebody yeah. every day it can just be like you randomly text them like oh my god I just thought about this one time or one of my friends that sometimes she'll be like oh I saw this top in Topshop and I, it reminded me of you and like I think like you say they're the they're the nicest kind of text messages anyway we've gone completely off yes um, but that's great I love that it's I great. absolutely love it when you just we just ramble on um but the one question I did want to ask was, you know, 
I think in that pre-contemplation stage, it because you maybe don't realise the negative impact of the eating disorder. And I think at the start, it's very much a, you know, a glorified, you know, you feel so great for all these new behaviours that you've developed. How, and you might not have the answer for this, but kind of how are we supposed to realise that things aren't going so well when everything feels on top of the world during that stage? You know, what? I, I think sometimes we kind of jump the gun in order to have the answers. And like, actually, I kind of think sometimes life is so chaotic and the world is so chaotic that actually um, sometimes it's OK not to have the answers in the moment because you'll make sense of it yeah. later on. I certainly think there are, there are certain things that we can do. For example, when I started losing weight, people kept on saying not only well done and congratulating me, but telling me that I looked good. So by extension, putting on weight meant that I looked bad and that I was bad. So I think breaking that uh, circuit of like, you know, losing weight is good and putting on weight is bad and stop, you know, um, I, I really try not to talk about people's physical appearances, etc. Um, and I think there's like baby steps um, like that. But I, I equally think that, you know what, there are certain people, I think that if you'd have put 10 people into the situation that I was in when I was growing up, um, I think there would be 10 different outcomes. And actually, I think that essentially for me, the eating disorder was a way of coping of getting back on touch uh, getting back on top and sort of being a bit of a life raft so I don't think there was really any sort of early intervention that could have been done then apart from talking about mental health more at large I remember we never really talked about mental health at, at school and like it really irks me again that whenever people talk about mental health, they always think, oh, fucking hell, there's a sob story. Or, here, here we go. This is going to be shit. Whereas actually, like, good mental health is one of the best yeah. fucking things in the world. And whenever we talk about physical health, you, you know, if you Google health, then you will get pictures of apples or people running or groups smiling. Whereas if you put the word mental in front of it, you'll get grayscale images of people head clutching in the bottom of some fucking stairwell well with graffiti behind them and no wonder people don't want to talk about mental health because it, it's about as bleak as Boris Johnson's family history so I you know it, it, it's one of those things that I think we do need to kind of try and change those perceptions around it that mental health does not equal mental illness and actually good mental health is fucking brilliant yeah yeah, and you're so right in that whenever we do mention it, people think about the negative, but we've all got mental health. It's, yeah. it's like you say, it's mental illness that is, you know, the one that affects people badly. I remember having one lesson on uh, mental health. Wow. Maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that is not an accurate representation because obviously this was like eight to ten years ago. Um, but the, the only one I remember was learning about, um, what do they call it? Drunkorexia, I think. Oh, yeah. And that, that's all I remember. We oh, just well, did a lot about like sexual, sexual health rather than mental health. 
Of course you did. And, and this is the thing that, like, again, even when we talk about when we when we talk about so many things that are actually genuinely quite important. I mean, I don't know how we fuck it up. Of like, actually, you know, you talk to you talk to teenagers about drugs, and at that sort of formative experimentation age, you would think that teenagers would be frothing at the gills to go, yes, a lesson about drugs. But the way that it's done, most people are like, I actually want to bunk off school. Yeah. And I, I think that's what's really sad because it's such a, a missed opportunity to like actually embrace and encourage people. And again, this is why, you know, without being too um, pious about it, I, that, that's why I think comedy comes into it quite nicely because I think it's a way of celebrating good mental health and trying to retain that. But uh, yeah, I don't, I honestly don't ever remember talking about mental health in that kind of pre-contemplation stage and and actually i think we're all stuck in that pre-contemplation stage because if you haven't had any mental health problems uh for you know your the entirety of your life it doesn't mean that you won't have any for the rest of your life Mm. so we're all essentially stuck in that pre-contemplation stage yeah that's a really good point and like I guess it's kind of what leads you to make certain choices to go out of that pre-contemplation stage to go to the contemplation stage what a nice little whatever the word is what <laughs> a segue I think the only way you can make that better is in the edit I'm expecting some music maybe like a little like a xylophone or maybe yes. some wind chimes going and uh, that's that was a so the contemplation stage the things that you said about that that stuck out to me was your identity distraction numbness euphoria when everything else feels rubbish it was a hobby and validation and Mm. I I think the reason why that stood out to me was just because I like was like wow that's exactly how I felt and it's like what you were saying earlier about the when you lost weight I distinctly remember being in a classroom and some girl that I I barely even knew uh, but she was like one of the cool girls and I was not Um, and she came up to me and she was like oh my god my mum saw you walking down the street uh, the other day and she was like you've lost so much weight you look amazing and you know that what at that age that popular girl was saying to me you're now accepted so why on earth would I have not carried on? Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. And actually that that also, the fact that that person passed that on to you shows that there, there must be some sort of, re- that, you know, how many things does that kid's mum say to her that doesn't pay any attention to? for a second thought yeah actually not only she thought about that she'd also later thought about that and then went up to you and tell us so this shows that that person's obviously thinking about weight quite a bit yeah yeah i think i think the contemplation stage is really interesting because it's th- th- this stage you're just kind of like wandering around you're like am i what's going on and i think it is um it's really interesting because i dipped in and out of some times i would think yeah i do have anorexia and then other times i'd be like you're a 
fucking idiot forever thinking that and the problem is i kind of it's not like you um it's kind of like having a bank balance when you've got loads of credit cards and loads of different wage packets come in you will never be completely in the black or completely in the red because there's still that extra bill to pay so it's always going up and Mm -hmm. down so you can't really put a pin on it and go right now i am officially anorexic or now i am officially well and that's what's difficult about contemplation but i absolutely think that the more and more i quibbled and worried about it the more i needed and wanted validation mm-hmm. yeah i think you're so right because i guess it starts however it starts i mean and this is my personal experience obviously not everyone is the same but it started and it was that validation and you know feeling really good but then when it becomes your identity you know I mean, I, I got diagnosed and I still didn't think that I had an eating disorder, but it almost became my identity because that I think that's yeah. what happens. But I then felt like, okay, well, I am anorexic. So now I need to prove that. And for me, I think the most difficult part was I was diagnosed with atypical anorexia. That was just a, well, you've literally not anorexic in the slightest mm. Um, because the one thing that you've tried to do you can't so best try harder I think that's where this in that kind of stage is so important that like yes I absolutely that really resonates with me because I always said that like at school I was never a cool kid I was never a jock I was never geeky I was never sporty I never had an identity label whereas the anorexia explained me and the problem with those explanations that's why I really struggle with the term uh, and always have done with the term comedian on a really semantic note because if you're a stand-up comic it's something that you do if you're a comedian it's something that you are and we all have Mm. down days where you're like um, and you can't live that life totally and it's the same with anorexia there were absolutely i never i never went days without i never went a day without eating uh and i still you know sort of feel guilty uh about that i i thought about food all the fucking time and and actually probably in a weird way because i was eating little nibbles of food here and there like actually probably ate sort of more than I did at other times in my life when I've been well but that became like it was like if you lose this then you have lost everything you've lost the only thing that you're not even good at but the the one thing that explains you it's kind of like if you are the uh like the the one in the the group that knows loads about grammar and then you spell you are wrong everyone's like who even are you you I thought you were the grammar girl you know what I mean it's like very odd um because you will you will never win anorexia yeah and that is such a good point I think you often or I often felt like I needed to prove myself so if Mm. you did ever come to a social occasion with food then I'd be like well I've got to prove that I've got an eating disorder I'm really glad that you said that um and you know about when you said that you maybe ate more than what you did when you were well sometimes because I think that is that needs to be shouted about a lot more 
and in the facts that eating disorders aren't about the amount of food that you're eating not eating your weight it is the preoccupation the constant thoughts the using food to show how you're feeling I think that's a big thing for a lot of people is I can't vocalize this so I'm going to demonstrate it by these other behaviors couldn't agree more I I always say and this is a bastardization of my partner's thesis uh but she's got a lovely phrase that the body is uh, a battleground for emotions and I think that really puts in a beautiful way of how I felt because I used my body to show that there was something wrong with my mind because I didn't have the words there I was like, people are like, you're right. No, I, 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 um, and it was just uh, noises. So actually to like try and physically put that there. And equally as well, I think I would have fast tracked my sort of recovery and treatment and betterment a lot quicker had I have realised that eating disorders are not actually about eating and not actually about food which is is odd because we don't think that well I suppose perhaps we do but like I think most people kind of understand that alcoholism isn't because you just really like fosters you know you mm. tell that to someone who's fucking swigging antifreeze or necking bottles of alcohol hand gel it's actually about an escape. It's about stuff underneath. And that's just the way that it's manifested. And if I'd have realized that actually the restriction and not eating, the preoccupation with weight and calories and exercise, it, it wasn't actually about that. It was about a fast track to feeling good. It was about validation. It was about trying to numb things that I wanted to run away from. If I'd have known that then, then I think I could have dealt with the real stuff rather than thinking that I just needed to get down to X stone. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is such a hard thing to explain, but I really liked the analogy that you used about like an alcoholic, because I think, like you say, people can understand it's a way of sort of numbing whatever's going on or escaping from what's going on and it's also you know it, it's the addiction to the feeling that you get when that is all numbed and I think that equally equates to an eating disorder and you I think you mentioned in your book about numbness in that I've definitely noticed you know more recently as I've come through my recovery that you know things like depression and anxiety got a lot louder when I started to recover from my eating disorder because they were no longer being numbed which you know I think that's something I'd never even contemplated before and also in recovery a really fucking awkward one that people never want to talk about is uh sex drive for me that was huge I I hated having a libido I hated being a slave to my loins and actually starving now it's fucking great it's brilliant you, mm. you get a lot more admin done when you haven't got a sex drive and there's there's also things as well that I um really uncomfortable truth but I think it's important to admit it is I fucking loved the anorexia 
for a short moment. And that's what's really important. This is not glorifying, encouraging or promoting eating disorder behavior. This is being realistic. So in the same way that whenever we got drugs education in school, people always used to go in and go, hey, kids, drugs are 100 percent bad. They're terrible. And I remember one of my mates going outside, smoking a joint and going, well, that person's a fucking idiot because I really love getting high and actually if someone had come in and go oh by the way yeah there, there is a reason that people get high there is a reason that people drink or sniff poppers because for that short time you feel great yeah. however if you keep using alcohol that has a longer term detriment and that is something that is really important with the anorexia because I loved it for about an hour every month and then that hour every month became an hour every six weeks an hour every two weeks an hour every six months and I was chasing the dragon and eventually it became harder and harder to catch and if I'd have realized that actually you never you know those snatches in time are so small compared to the damage and the actual pushing away from your ultimate happiness, then I think that would have been a real wake-up call to me to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I probably wouldn't drink so excessively because I feel a, a nice little bit woozy for half an hour. I'm not going to drink for a month solid in order to get that. I'm just going to say, but you can't, People get uncomfortable, understandably, talking about that because it sounds like you are saying, hey, eating disorders are great. You're not. What, you, what I'm absolutely saying is there is a reason that people, knowingly or not, turn to them because they will deceive you. They will trick you. They will make you remember the good stuff and shroud out the myriad of the bad stuff. Yeah. And I think it, it's like you say, it's so important to be honest about that, because there is a reason why eating disorders are maintained, you know, for, for, for several years for some people. There's a reason why people struggle to let go. You know, if it was that it was always awful, I think recovery probably would be a bit of an easier thing. But there is a reason why people hang on. And I guess that nicely takes us into the next stage of recovery is the preparation stage and realizing it is a coping mechanism and realizing that there is a lot of shit involved in it it's not so good anymore but not quite being able to let go um and I, the quote that I picked out on this was you said my anorexia was a slobimo subliminal response to a shitty situation that was out of my control and I think the reason why I loved that quote so much is because and I don't think that this is how everybody sees their eating disorder but there is a big rhetoric of eating disorders the reason they develop and persist is because it allows people to be in control or to feel like they're in control I don't necessarily think that's the case for everybody um but in in the same way the idea of control it just interests me so much because it's so clever let's say we're thinking about the eating disorder as like another being I always think it's so clever because it makes you feel like you're in control actually you're, you've com got completely no control over the situation 
Yeah, I don't. I've always been with the term control for two reasons. One is because my mum always used to tell me, oh, eating disorders are a way of control. Always used to tell me that. And I'm a petulant little bastard. So I'd always be like, no, mum, you're wrong. But also, I don't really like something that explains away one of the most, uh, you know, sort of a very complex psychiatric problem that has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness in a single word and two syllables. Like I don't, you know, it's probably a bit reductive. and and so in that vein, I kind of have always been queasy about that. But in the operation phase, for me, I think, at least at the moment, I think one of the things that's most front and centre about preparation is everyone talked about recovery as taking the anorexia away. No one talked about giving anything back so I had everything to lose from recovery and nothing to gain it was my diseased coping mechanism and although at that point in time I realized that it wasn't ideal it was diseased and that it was holding me back people still started talking about taking it away rather than saying We give you your sense of humour, your idea of fun, your sociability, your concentration, your memory, your warmth, your hate, your sex drive, your masculinity. If people had said, we can give you those things back, and we're like, all right, where do I fucking start? But no, people kept on talking about taking it away. Yeah, taking the one thing that you are currently relying on. And that compounded with the fact that if, you know, if you define yourself as anorexic, then you take that term away, you necessarily have nothing left. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think for me, and I I don't want to sound schmaltzy because I'm one of the most cynical, dead-eyed bastards you can ever meet, but I honestly loved recovery from the moment I realized this is like a gap year that I never got this is about dicking about this is about trying new things and failing but having fun at it Mm -hmm. and actually that was a huge turning point rather than this was some enforced way of changing my behavior and getting rid of something that I tried for decades to be brilliant at yeah I think in a way or how do I put this I think because especially with anorexia it it's such a black and white way of thinking I think we often think that there's one way to do recovery and that's the way that everybody needs to do it and that there needs to be you know certain rules and everything that you have to follow which just kind of perpetuates the eating disorder but you're so right in having fun and it's really sad that I've never considered this before but actually there's so much fun to have you know you're trying things that you haven't tried for you know however long you've been in in the depth of eating disorder for like you know and let yourself feel that fun don't have that restraint around you of like oh I'm in recovery so nothing's going to be enjoyable because actually you know not even the food stuff I think that's the other thing is that 
for me, I was always fixated on, oh, I'm going to be able to eat this again. But actually it wasn't that it was going outside and like being able to have a second in my day to look at flowers because I wasn't thinking about how many steps am I doing at the minute? I, I completely. And I don't want to steal the thunder of what's going to later come, but I think that's where comedy for coping comes in in order to help with early intervention. People prepare themselves to not necessarily recover, but to have fun, to break things down, to try and understand themselves a little bit more. And in the course, we look at everything from identity to journaling, to reframing, to rigid thoughts, all through that filter of humour and jokes and actual sustainable coping mechanisms. But that prepared that preparedness uh, moment, uh, I think, is scary. And I think it's okay to be scared, but I think it's really important to say, you know what, you haven't slipped into this overnight. You ain't going to get out of it overnight either. So don't set yourself the task of walking up Kilimanjaro. Set yourself the task of getting to the end of the street. Walk before you can run. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you've mentioned it, I'm going to ask you about it now. What is your comedy for coping course? <clears throat> so I'm so excited. It, it, it's my new hobby course. And I, I genuinely, I, I could talk about this all fucking day, but I suppose it kind of comes more into the sustaining bit, like right at the end. But basically when I was going through therapy, I was writing a show about anorexia and I actually realized that therapy and joke writing and performing are actually not that difficult because you're actually taking really, in both, you're taking really meaty, huge, complex ideas and topics and essentially breaking them down as far as they can go in order to understand them. And you can't joke effectively about something that you haven't understood. And in the course, it's done all over zoom so it is a six-week comedy course specifically aimed at people at the moment with experience of eating disorders and we just won a grant from the british academy to hire a researcher alongside collaboration from king's college london university of nottingham and university of kent to do some proper qualitative analysis on this i'll be honest, you know what those words fucking mean. What it means for me is that we got to get 10 participants uh, the opportunity to teach them stand up. And I thought I was genuinely terrified when I set out on this that people would go, You are fucking bonkers. This is a terrible idea. This is, this is like trying to give teddy bears to cure cancer. But what has really surprised me is we wanted to get 10 people to do the course. We ended up getting nearly 50 applications. I, I couldn't believe it. And we didn't. That's even, amazing. It's insane. And we've just so we're doing the second week next week. Um, but the basic everything about it aims at mental health so the most important thing with stand-up people think it's about being the most gregarious confident 
loudest room person in the room, but it isn't. Fundamentally, the most important thing in stand-up is connection and that connection with an audience. Because you can be the funniest person in the room, but if no bastard's listening to you, it doesn't mm. matter as stuff. And what is one of the main things that people talk about with mental illness and with eating disorders is loneliness, is lack of connection. Mm-hmm. And comedy has that brilliant idea to not only you know write jokes to connect with other people, but if you just go to a comedy club in unison, you are connecting with other people. That's what a laugh is. Of saying we all find this funny. And then the second most important thing about stand-up is your persona, because if you don't sell the jokes right, people feel uncomfortable laughing at them, which is the, where the very origin of a dad joke comes from, because it's that kind of like, oh, I'm trying to fit in, but I don't. And that's brilliant, because for me, the eating disorder was essentially about identity. As I say, I never had anything to explain me. The eating disorder explained me. And having a using Jungian techniques, we try and get people to play with ideas and see if you are an angry comic if you're a quiet comic, if you're a weird comic, if you're a very Jack the Lad comic, and then you play around with identity and then the next couple of weeks are using joke writing techniques that are specifically created and catered to talking about mental health and making sense of things. And then the final week, it's performing to a group. And the idea is that it's peer support to help people out. Now, I've only ever run the group twice and I've been really chuffed that in both sets of group, there are still people who met on that course. So the first course that I did was about nine months ago and there are still people who met on that course that are still in touch, that are going to visit when lockdown went up. Someone from Kent went up to um, the Midlands to stay with someone in Derbyshire that they met on the course, and which is just so lovely. Um, so I am so excited about it, and I could bang on about it for hours. It sounds incredible. I think the thing that stuck out to me the most was when you said about the identity, because like we've said uh, so much, you know, eating disorders maybe do become your identity. So. Yeah, I think that sounds and just having fun with everything, like you said, being a bit more lighthearted, not taking things so seriously and that connection, like you said, making friends with people. I think that understand, you know, can understand on a certain level what you've been through and kind of where you're heading now, I think sounds fantastic. Um, Going back to the stages, relapse. I think it's a stage of recovery that everybody is absolutely terrified of. Um, but I think sometimes it needs to happen. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I think you've put in your book about eating disorders being latent and not being gone. And I think we always have this idea of, uh, full recovery and I mean I don't know what your opinion on this is but mine I I don't know what full recovery ever actually looks like because you know once you've been through an eating disorder I think you do change so you're never going to go back to the person that you were before 
but equally some of the characteristics that maybe predisposed me I actually quite like in myself so does that mean does that mean I have to get rid of those parts of me in order to be fully recovered um so yeah what's your thoughts I, I couldn't agree more. And personally, I uh, say within certain parameters, I actually think relapse is a good thing. Because look, bottom line, if you do anything, you are going to fuck up. You know, there's like that Thomas Edison quote of, I didn't fail. It, it, there's some quote of like, I didn't fail a thousand times. I just found different ways of eventually getting to something successful. Or, I mean, he, he says it a lot better than I did. I just bastardized a really poetic <laughs> quote. But I, I think that I think that relapse is really important for so many different reasons. One is I think actually a lot of the time relapse comes because unachievable goals have been set by yourself to achieve. And actually that makes you recalibrate and go like, mm, actually, is that something? Are we doing baby steps or are we getting impatient? Secondly, you know what? A lot of the time people can find um, that, you know, if you start uh, with, with so many things, but, you know, if you start restricting again and stuff, then like a lot of the time you can be like fucking hell how did I do this for so long it's horrible and actually remembers you of the bad things as well as the good things which I think Mm -hmm. is very very important but also you know what I, I think that people are human and I don't like the Hollywood Disney esque version of happily ever after I, I just don't think that resonates with me and there are still times you know look the past 18 months I've found it really difficult you know I've had like everyone you know you've had your exercise restricted you've been stuck inside around food with mounting economic uncertainty mounting social pressures um, of course that's been a perfect storm so no is I don't think you're ever going to be a hundred percent right, but would you ever want to be one hundred percent happy? No, it should be a fucking nightmare to be around. I, I I just don't. I think I think obviously we like as as animals. I think we like binary things because they are unchanging. But unfortunately, the first rule of the Buddha is that all things change, and actually. Um, accepting that and acknowledging that and sort of going, yeah, there are going to be times when they're better and worse at recovery is a lot more robust and it sets yourself up to win rather than fail. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I have always seen it in the kind of, I don't know, when my brain just kind of changed the analogy that I was just going to say, and I don't know whether I actually like it. Um, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's almost like, a bouncing ball in that like the because you know I can completely agree with you about COVID I think it's been a really difficult time and I did you know at one point think am I in the middle of a relapse now and I don't think I was I don't think I was but other things went on and it was almost as though I had to crash to bounce back even higher and now I feel better than I ever have but I almost needed to to drop to be like okay like I'm currently swimming along very like contently but I'm not actually happy or sad I needed to drop down to be like okay something has to change let's change it let's be proactive up we go I I think that's a great analogy because I actually think that part of recovery is relapse in the sense that your drops 
should hopefully if you're moving in the right direction become less and less dramatic instead of being completely down and out with nowhere to go or nothing to turn to actually they could come from losing your job you know ending a, a relationship someone dying all of the traumatic things that unfortunately we'll probably have to go through in some sort of semblance throughout our lives and actually going oh that's shit right let's get back up so actually you're not going in a direct straight line upwards it's two steps forward one step back yeah and I think as well something I've definitely noticed is yes shit happens and it feels horrible but I'm turning to like beneficial coping mechanisms as opposed to not eating um and that actually really nice as nicely brings us on to the next one action recovery is a process not a state i love it and and again this links back to the comedy for coping thing because one of the things i am so fucking pumped about with that is hopefully longer term we've got like ideas uh, for where it could go but ideally i would love with the course to actually, when people have graduated from the course, them to keep on going and keep on writing, whether that's just journaling, whether that's going on and performing, whether that's writing for other people. And I would love to do another podcast in, say, 30, 40 years' time. And there is a community of eating disorder comedy. That is a genre in itself, like improv is or sketch comedy i would love there to be of eating disorder or mental health comics and because you know life is a process and it's how you make that that fun for yourself and i think for me that's one of the things that's really exciting about comedy for coping is because uh humor and writing is never something that is done it's always something that's going to be tweaked you will never have a a hundred percent perfect show Mm. and that sounds like another such a another such a that was not sentence (laughs) (laughs) that sounds like something else that's so important from the comedy is learning to not be perfect and that you know I'm sure not every single joke gets the laughs that you wanted it to but that's okay what a great analogy from comedy that could be used for recovery is the wonderful Eddie Izzard they say that when they're writing they have ideas um that they and the phrase that they use is roll over so they will come up with ideas and they will riff on them and see what the audience likes and they will increase some things sometimes or maybe get rid of things and i think for me that's what recovery is for me is we're all in a dark room bumping off the furniture but actually once you've done once you've gone in a certain pattern then you know that footstool's there that shelf is there and you might still bump on the furniture but hopefully you've got more of a better way of navigating that route yeah absolutely and that (laughs) i've got another quote from the last stage 
and your maintenance stage and you literally have put something so similar in that we're all on a journey and sometimes there's the odd diversion it's important that it doesn't knock you off track and I think that's kind of like what you were just saying there in that you might still do things wrong yeah that's okay but being able to recognize them and get yourself back onto the right track and who knows what the right track is anyway like you know you could be going down a track that feels right and then actually because I always think that in terms of my my now career you know if I hadn't had an eating disorder I would not be doing what I'm doing now but it's working out and I'm enjoying myself so you know it felt like a bloody awful track to go down but actually it's actually now quite a good track I think the real secret to life is when you realize that there isn't actually a right and a wrong route it's mm-hmm. just the routes that you take yeah. I don't believe in predetermination I don't believe in fate and actually no matter how old you are it's easy to turn around and go I made the right decision there because you know what any decision can be the right decision yeah. if you just plow it I don't yeah. believe that we are destined to go anywhere so just fucking carve it but the biggest thing to bear in mind is positive sustainable choices of which eating disorders are not yeah and if you have a day when things don't feel that great and I mean I don't know but I this is for me um it might not be the same for you but sometimes if the day's not going too great I do see my eating sort of through rose tinted glasses and think oh it provided me Mm. such a good level of protection and you know sometimes it was just a time filler and sometimes I'd be like oh you know I cried for an hour and that's just past an hour and that's great what if somebody's listening and they're kind of in that maintenance phase but keep being drawn back a little bit maybe they're not quite at the maintenance phase yet what sort of things did you do to make sure that you did kind of steer yourself I think uh one of the biggest inspirations for that phrase phase for me was I read a book called Yes Man by Danny Wallace and it is a brilliant book and it's been made into a film with Jim Carrey, which I refuse to see because in my eyes, that book is more sacred than the Bible. But basically (laughs) he says yes to everything, whether it's illegal and moral or hurts him or anybody else. And he ends up doing loads of stuff. So if you are feeling a little bit lost, muck about, use it, try and find what resonates for you. And on those down days, there are always going to be moments when you kind of try and reassess whether this was a good idea. But there are little pick-me-ups that you can do. So I have a feel-good folder in my phone of pictures of dogs that we look after because that's another coping mechanism borrow my doggy we can't get our own dog so we look after these two little idiots called Alfie and Pippa and we take them for a walk get exercise big tick for mental health we see other people big tick for mental health doggy snuggles big tick for mental health I love the song wear sunscreen by Baz Luhrmann and I always listen to that on rubbish days and I am constantly looking honing and increasing the amount of coping mechanisms for if things do get rubbish because it's a scrapbook it's not an essay it's not something that will ever be finished you can always add stuff to it and I think that's what's really important of don't aim for perfection aim for good enough 
I like that a lot. And also, I love the fact that you referred to scrapbooking because that is one of my favourite coping mechanisms. On is it? I've got, oh, I wow. think, since... I want to say 2016 I've done a scrapbook every year uh, and I will like collect tickets and I don't know weird like you know napkins if it's got a place we've been on it or whatever print off all the photos and then stick them all and I really like doing art and stuff and like designing letters so I like do my own letters for the months and everything and that just takes me to another planet. Oh, that's amazing. See, that's more creative than a fucking dear diary. I mean, that's impressive. <laughs> See, that's the thing. I guess that's that's my journaling. Because I yeah. write, like, you know, where we went or whatever and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah. Well, okay, maybe I'll let myself off then. See, that's yeah, me trying absolutely. to do something perfect, per, 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 perfectly. That's how you say the word, not perfectly. Um, but I'm going to say perfectly because that's not perfect. I quite um, like that. It's like I now say Wagamama, not Wagamama. I like that. Yeah, I'm never going to see Wagamamas in the same way ever again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've done the, the phases, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. Basically, I reached out to the listeners and asked them if they had any questions. What you've been wanting to ask. And so we've got a couple of questions Um, and I actually wanted to ask you this earlier, but I was like, no, Hannah, hold that because that's not for now. But we did kind of almost creep up onto the conversation. So in terms of comedy around eating disorders, um, somebody's asked, where do you draw the line about laughing at eating disorders? Because if someone made a joke about it, I would find it offensive. Great, great question. So we actually cover this in the course. There's a difference between laughing at something and laughing around something. So there are loads of lazy jokes about eating disorders and, you know, sort of especially restrictive eating disorders. Well, and actually not especially restrictive disorders, but, you know, things like, oh, binge eating disorder, I would deal with it, but I've got a lot on my plate and stuff like that. That's laughing at something. Yeah. That is the butt of the joke is the person that has that diagnosis. Whereas laughing around something seeks to use comedy to educate, to explain and inform. So, you know, an example that I, you know, have given around this before is I became obsessed with weighing myself and any time I'd eaten when I was living at home, I would run upstairs and I'd do 50 push-ups, I'd do squats, I'd do sit-ups. And when I was writing the show about the anorexia, I said to my mom, you know, why did you never say anything about the exercising? And she said, well, you know, Dave, when your teenage son keeps on running up to his room and you keep on hearing rhythmical banging full of a repeated grunting, you tend not to ask questions. It's a wank joke, <laughs> but that's joking around. That's looking at the behaviours rather than the person. And also another thing that we cover in the course is about ownership. What is your relationship to that topic? So yes. if I started making jokes about what it's like being a Canadian single mother, you'd be a bit like, what the fuck do you know? And you'd be absolutely right that I know nothing. Whereas Catherine Ryan, she is a Canadian single mother. So even if it's about saying Canadian single mothers are terrible, A, she is included in that category, but B, she has walked in those mm -hmm 
shoes. And then that leads to the final part between punching down and punching up. Comedy can be used to bully, belittle and ridicule. And we try and avoid that. But you can still use that in things like satire, which is punching up and actually trying to um, satirize people in power. Whereas punching down is using comedy to belittle those who have less power than you. So actually, I would use comedy in order to punch up rather than punch down and there's a great example of that a brilliant comic called joe wells it was like you know giving him the mmr vaccine and that's meant to help you get autism but it hasn't and he you know he'd done amazing things for a non-autistic person like he's gone to university <laughs> for a non-autistic person is amazing and obviously he had to have a specialized course uh, you know it's called film and media studies but for a non-autistic person and and that is punching up because it's taking the mick out of people who don't have autism rather than belittling people that do. Yeah. I love that. I think that, that's really tickled me. Um, but I think you're so right in that there's definitely a way to do it. Um, and I do think that having the experience yourself, I mean, one, it, it, you then know how it feels, um, which is why I think, I, I distinctly remember, this was years ago um, before, because I asked you on the podcast because you did one with George because George showed me some of your stuff and when he showed me the TED talk that you did I was like I watched this years ago your Chris Packett one when the when the <laughs> lady said I can I know how to cure you I'll give you some crisps and I think you know if you hadn't had that experience and known that that was not the way to cure an eating disorder then you wouldn't have known that that wasn't right but equally because I had been through it I then knew how funny that was and I could laugh at it um because that's not how you currently so uh, yeah I think all of those things tangled together you're you're absolutely right um and then the second question um and I have also been asked this because I now work in research so um I'd be interested to hear your opinion um, is do you think that using your eating disorder to shape your career keeps the eating disorder identity alive? Brilliant, brilliant question. Um, my honest answer for that would be no. However, I think using your eating disorder uh is can be an incredible and amazing thing but i see people that are stuck almost in a feedback loop of they become they talk so much about their eating disorder that the idea of getting rid of that feels like getting rid of themselves so my argument to that would be yes your eating disorder has been the spark that lit the touch paper but actually you're doing research and the same argument could be for me of like yes the eating disorder in inspired the comedy but actually the outlet there was humor i feel really uncomfortable about just talking about eating disorders for the sake of like creating that as a job but I do it partly because I'm so lucky and privileged and honoured 
to have incredible treatment that I almost want to pay that back to others who haven't had that opportunity. But I completely take that point that I've said this to numerous people. If you want to write a book about it, if you want to do art on it, if you want to create sculptures, whatever, absolutely fill your boots, but make sure that you untangle that this success equals you being a success. Yeah. And I think from what you've just said, one thing to consider if you are, and I feel like this is basically what you're saying and I'm just rephrasing it so I'm basically repeating you, but you would be a success whether or not you were doing it something based around your eating disorder. The, the characteristics that you have that have made you a success mean that whatever you would do, you'd still be a success. So I guess it's, I think maybe sometimes people could think oh, I'm only good at this because it's eating disorder related, but actually it's the commitment you have to things. It's the effort that you put into things. It's the motivation that you have. You'd, you'd be doing well in whatever yeah. you decided to set your heart on. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree. And I, I think it's one of these things of like, I, I really do as well. People sort of say, find something that you're passionate about. And yeah, maybe, but I'd say find something that you're good at. Actually, I think that that that's really what it boils down to, because like, if you're good at something and I'm not saying like, I mean, ironically, because I'm the opposite. I'm very passionate about stand up, but I'm fucking terrible at it. But if I was if I was better at it, I think I would enjoy it more because, you know, I, I would just be able to turn up and do it rather than have to work my fucking ass off to be mediocre. Well, I think you've put yourself down a lot there. Uh, and I don't think that you're mediocre in the slightest and the fact that you're doing it I think you're brilliant so bless you well thank you for having me on it's been a pleasure I've loved it I think it's been fantastic and I've been so excited all day to speak to you um because I loved your book so much and I loved the podcast you did with George so yeah and also I went onto your website earlier and I was like looking through your um times that you've been on tv and radio and i was like bloody hell we have got a big job coming on the podcast today (laughs) you're so sweet that's very sweet it's all smoke and mirrors i tell you (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's been absolutely lovely dave so thank you very much thank you i i've actually been here so long that i'm gonna have to be really rude because i am actually dying for a wee wee so i might have to leave you on that that is absolutely fine and i'm not getting rid of that bit <laughs> yeah, please do. That's great. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much, Hannah. I so enjoyed that podcast with Dave, and I hope you had a good old giggle like we did. I really enjoyed speaking to Dave about his journey, but also how he's now doing comedy for coping. And I just think it's such an amazing initiative and a different way of looking at therapy, but also understanding who you are. Next week, we'll be joined by PhD student Laura Bourne. Laura is doing her PhD in ARFID, which stands for Avoidant Restrictive Feeding and Intake Disorder, and is something that's not overly spoken about, so it's really interesting to learn and understand what ARFID actually is. People say, if you leave them for long enough, they'll eat. So if, if they're hungry enough, they'll eat. And actually, that's not true for ARFID. The child just won't eat. And it could be that they have a complete lack of interest, um, lack of appetite, a lack of interest in food completely. 
Um, or it could be that they just really can't stand lots of different foods. So if you sit them at the table with a plate of unaccepted foods, they just won't eat it. They won't, they'll go to bed hungry, they'll get up the next day, they won't eat it again. It's not something that you can just sort of leave and ignore and hope that it will resolve itself. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe to be one of the first to hear it. Please also like, comment and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may need support at the moment. Not only those struggling with eating disorders, but also their loved ones, as this can be a very difficult time for everyone. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire individuals along their path of recovery. If you are struggling with an eating disorder, charities like Beat, Seed and First Steps have great resources. Please also reach out to your local GP to see how you can gain support for your eating disorder. See you next time. Bye.